There we go. Good morning, everybody. It's great to be here with you on Palm Sunday, and uh, hoping this coming rain will wash away some of the pollen. Um, and I just wanted to say, what a sweet time of worship. Um, so Trevor, I, I think you kind of stole my sermon with that second song, There's No More Guilt to Carry, It Was Finished Upon That Cross. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, so turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 27. We're going to continue in the series we've been doing in the, the very end of Matthew. So Matthew chapter 27. So um, Ernie's covered the first half or so of this chapter, and we're going to look at just the second half of this chapter today. Uh, and let's pray as we get started. Oh, Father, we come to you today. Lord, we desire to hear from you. I pray that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, that you'd help us to hear your voice um, in your word this morning. Lord, in my weakness be made strong, Lord, and speak through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Matthew 27. So, we're picking it up at verse 45, um, and it starts out in the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land. So, the sixth hour is actually noon. So, we've had, you know, coming up to this, we've had um, Jesus delivered to Pilate, Judas uh, Judas takes his own life. Jesus goes before Pilate. You know, they had the whole thing about the crowd choosing Barabbas, and Jesus is delivered up to be crucified. And then when the crucifixion happens, um, this is kind of the moment that Jesus' whole life has been leading up to. This is the climax of the whole story. So if you think about, you know, when Jesus said, the Son of Man came, you know, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, like, this is it. This is the give his life part. Or, you know, when John the Baptist is first seeing Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Like, the Lamb is a reference to sacrifice, like a lamb dying, and this is the moment um, where Jesus gives his life. And so a lot of things happen in this moment. So it's the sixth hour, which is about noon, and it's dark. Um, that's the first thing that happens. Then Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You got the bystanders saying, hey, maybe he's calling for Elijah. Someone offers him a drink. A lot going on. And then the curtain of the temple is torn in two, um, which is pretty remarkable. And then something else pretty remarkable happens. Tombs are opened, and bodies of saints who have fallen asleep were raised. Um, something else pretty remarkable happens. The centurion who's watching over this whole thing gets saved in this moment. Um, the women are there looking on from a distance. Um, and then when Jesus dies, it comes time for him to be buried. And this rich dude named Joseph of Arimathea comes up to Pilate and says, hey, can, can I just bury him in my own tomb? Um, and Pilate says yes. So he takes the body, buries him, um, wrapped in, in cloth. And then the next day, the priests um, and the Pharisees come up to Pilate and say, like, man, we got to make sure he stays in this tomb. Like, I don't know, he's been saying crazy things about on the third day he'd rise again and all this stuff, and I just want to make sure he stays in and nothing crazy happens. And so Pilate says, okay, sure, you know, station some guards there and, uh, you know, make it as secure as you want. And that is the, uh, 
That's the second half of this, this chapter 27. And I want to focus in on what Jesus actually says on the cross. Um, there are seven statements that Jesus says on the cross. Um, and we'll have them up here. And they're recorded in different Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each record you know, a couple of them or one of them or, or whatever. And it's kind of like that whole thing Ernie mentioned, you know, different people recording the same event are going to pick up on different de details. So if a house is burning, you know, one person who's watching says, yeah, the dog ran out the garage. Another person says, you know, the cat jumped out the window. Another person says, yeah, a squirrel ran around the back of the house, whatever. And they're all just complimentary details. And that's what we see here with the different accounts in the Gospels, picking up on different things Jesus said. So the first one recorded here in Matthew is, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And this is actually quoting Psalm 22. And it's a pretty remarkable um, uh, psalm that he's quoting. It's a messianic psalm that points to the death of Jesus and describes in vivid detail crucifixion. I won't read the whole thing, but it says I'm, in Psalm 22, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. And all of these Descriptions are very um, vivid descriptions of, of what crucifixion was actually like. My strength is dried up like potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. Dehydration was a huge part of that experience. Um, he goes on, they've pierced my hands and my feet. Like that's right there in Psalm 22. I can count on my bones. You know, not one of his bones was broken. Um, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So all of that is prophesied you know, hundreds of years ago in Psalm 22, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the psalm he's echoing. The next one, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the mercy of God on display, um, that Jesus is extending forgiveness to his executioners. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Obviously, spoken to the thief on the cross who says, you know, in his final breath, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. It's never too late to put your trust in Jesus as long as you have breath in your lungs. The next one is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Jesus gives up his soul in his final hour. And then, woman, behold your son and behold your mother, kind of combining those into one statement, where you know, one of the things that Jesus is thinking about in his final hours on earth is taking care of his mother um, and putting her in the care of John. And then I thirst. And this one, a lot, of, a lot of things that could be going on with this one. So obviously dehydration, as I mentioned, is a huge part of the crucifixion experience. Um, that was part of the torture, was just this tremendous thirst. Um, so that obviously could be one of the reasons he says, I thirst. Um, there's also another reference to a prophetic psalm um, that's tied up in this. And then I was, I was reading up on this, and one, one person made a point that struck me that could also be he's wetting his throat for one final utterance from the cross. And that brings us to the last statement recorded in the last gospel that Jesus said on the cross. It is finished. And that's what I want to talk about today. Yeah, there is no more guilt to carry. It was finished upon that cross. It is finished. So what was finished? So for Jesus, his suffering was finished. I mean, you know, Ernie's walked us through the, the suffering that Jesus went through, the flogging, the crucifixion, the crown of thorns, like all of that 
it's finally finished. He can just give up his soul. It is finished. Um, in addition, the, uh, the payment for the debt of sin um, is finished. You know, he drank the wrath of God, poured out upon sin. And as Ernie said, turned the cup over. It was finished. Um, his ministry on earth as a man was finished. And his, his journey in a human tent like ours, with all of its limitations and temptations and frailty and challenges and weaknesses, that was finished. You know, when Jesus rises from the dead, he's in a resurrection body. He's walking through walls and all kinds of stuff. So his journey in a human tent like ours is finished. So for Jesus, this marked the end of a lot of things, but it also marked the end of an era for God's people. And today I want to look at three things that finished when Jesus died on the cross. Number one, he brought an end to the sacrifices. You know, as far back as Genesis, sacrifices have been a big part of people's relationship with God. Um, you have, even in the Adam and Eve story, you've got uh, the very first instance of an animal being killed because of sin. So when, Jesus, when, when God replaces their fig leaves with the you know, clothes made out of skin, like, that means an animal died. Um, and... That's the first instance we have of you know, an animal being sacrificed for sin. Um, then you've got Abel offering you know, one of his flock to God. You've got Noah offering sacrifice to God. You've got Abraham offering sacrifices to God. Moses offering sacrifices to God. And then in the book of Leviticus, this whole sacrificial system is really spelled out. And from now on, like this is how you relate to God. You offer sacrifices. Why? Well, God is holy. And sin can't dwell in his presence. But he made a temporary way so that people wouldn't be consumed on the spot uh, by the holiness of God. And that was, you know, instead of you dying because of your sin, you could offer an animal as sacrifice to God. And if you kind of step back and imagine this whole sacrificial system, like, it was not a pretty picture. I don't know if many of you have ever spent time hunting uh, you know, maybe some of you had experienced that in your past where, uh, you know, you go out and deer hunting or whatever, and, you know, if you're successful on that hunting trip, that means all of a sudden you have to deal with a dead animal, and it's kind of gross. Um, I had a couple experiences in childhood of going on a hunting trip or two with some friends, and I remember watching someone dress a deer in their garage when they got it back, and like, you know, blood and guts everywhere, like, it's really gross. Um, and uh, I had one successful hunting trip myself where uh, I actually killed, so I've, I've never had to dress a deer or anything like that, but I, I did have to dress a squirrel. Um, <laughs> we, uh, my brother and I, when we were, I don't know how old we were, maybe 11 or 12 or something, went out with BB guns and we each shot a squirrel and brought it back and we had been taught like, okay, if you kill something, you eat it. Like this is the code for, for hunters. And so we came back and we were, dressing those squirrels and skinning them and gutting them and all, all the nasty stuff. Um, and we, we got a little bit of meat and put it in a little container and, and offered it to my mother. <laughs> and she put that container straight into the freezer where it stayed for, I think, a year or two um, until finally uh, someone said, you know what, we're not going to eat this. Let's just throw it away. <laughs> so we never did eat the squirrel. But... Uh, if you've ever been around dead animals, it's kind of gross. Um, and this was the experience, you know, for people in this sacrificial system. 
you know, you're seeing animals killed again and again, and it's not pleasant, and it's a constant reminder of the seriousness of sin. Um, you know, God is holy, and sin can't dwell in his presence, and sin had to be dealt with again and again and again. So it's this constant cycle of, you know, tell a lie, kill a pigeon, touch a corpse, burn a goat. Um, and then the climax of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement, which was... And, you know, once a year, it's in the very middle of the book of, Le- of Leviticus where the priest offers this sacrifice on behalf of all the people, and it's kind of a catch-all. It's like, odds are, you probably missed something in all of your offering of sacrifices, and so this would kind of cover everything, but it had to be repeated every year um, because that was the system. And it was a temporary system to allow man to dwell with God and not be consumed. And when Jesus died on the cross, this whole system of sacrifice was finished, Um, Hebrews explains that God replaced this system with a new covenant. In Hebrews 9.26, it says, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sacrifice. He got rid of it. Uh, Sorry, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus became the sacrifice. I mean, imagine all your life you've been offering sacrifices and seeing sacrifices happen and all this stuff. And all of a sudden, Jesus becomes the sacrifice to put away sin once and for all. What does this mean for us today? You never have to offer sacrifices to be accepted by God. You never have to offer sacrifices to be accepted by God. And I think sometimes, you know, we still act like we're living under the sacrificial system. It's like, ah. I messed up again, I I did something I shouldn't have, well, I'll go to church twice this week. Or, you know, I can't believe it, I told a little white lie, I really shouldn't have and I feel guilty. Well, I'm going to go do a good deed, maybe I'll give some money to a poor person or something like that to make up for it. And we live like we're still under this sacrificial system, but you never have to offer sacrifices to be accepted by God. Um, In addition, you don't need to keep remembering and worrying about past sins, you know, things in the past, I think we all probably have things that we've done in our lives that when you think back on it, you just cringe. And maybe feelings of shame wash over you like a wave. It is finished. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And that's why God says in Hebrews, I will remember their sins no more. So remember today that his sacrifice has taken away your sin. Behold the Lamb of God. Look to him and remember that his sacrifice takes away the sin of the world. So the first thing that ended was the sacrifices. The second thing I want to look at that ended is Jesus brought an end to our separation from God. When Jesus died on the cross, he brought an end to our separation from God. So when Adam and Eve sinned, the biggest consequence and result of that is they were separated from God. Um, you know, they were sent out of the intimacy of the garden and life completely changed. Yeah, and imagine what life was like for Adam and Eve, you know, pre-fall in the garden. It's like, you know, there are no bugs, no mosquitoes, no pollen, you know, everything's perfect. You wake up in the morning, yeah, you, you smell the flowers, you feel the sunshine, you know, warming your body and you, you, know, you look around and you go for a walk with God. Like, life was amazing. 
And when sin entered the world, that completely changed, and they were sent out of the garden. And this was a tragic, tragic day. You know, from now on, you got to fend for yourself in a harsh world. And from then on, <clears throat> people have had this unfulfilled longing for that intimacy with God. <clears throat> Excuse me. We had a little cold or something cycle through our house a week ago, and I saw some lingering uh, effects from, from last week. Or it could be allergies, a lot of allergies going on. Um, so people have this unfulfilled longing of that intimacy with God, but even then, there's hope. And God gives Adam and Eve this promise that Ernie spoke to recently of, in Genesis 3.15, one day he'll crush the head of the serpent. But the saddest part, I think, of, of the curse and of the fall of man and all of that was losing access to the intimacy with God. Um, losing access to God's presence. Um, and in his mercy, God allowed his people to experience just a taste of his presence in the tabernacle. So we see that you know, in, in Exodus where they, they build this tabernacle where God will dwell among his people in just a very limited capacity of God's presence among his people. And I was recently reading through Exodus you know, in my, my Bible read through and you get to the descriptions of the tabernacle and you've probably been there where you get to this part of scripture and you're like, I don't know what all this is about. So I pulled up the Bible project, you know, those little videos, little five-minute videos that summarize the book of the Bible. And they were talking about the tabernacle and, um, you know, what was the tabernacle all about? And you've got this symbolism of, you know, flowers and angels and gold and jewels. And one of the things that just struck me that they said, all that symbolism echoes back to the garden. The tabernacle was the place of, you know, representing intimacy with God and all this symbolism of flowers and gold, and gold and jewels and all these things echo back to the garden, which is the intimacy that God's people longed for. But the separation was still real. You couldn't just waltz into the tabernacle however you wanted. Um, you had to come on God's terms. And of course, the tabernacle was later replaced with the permanent structure of the temple. And the separation remains. And in the temple system, you've got this huge curtain that separates you from the Holy of Holies. And, you know, God's presence is behind that curtain in the Holy of Holies, and you really can't waltz in back there of your own accord. Um, only the priests could go in once a year. Um, or, sorry, even the priests couldn't go in except the high priest once a year. And tradition, I mean, this is not scripture, but tradition says that they went in with a rope tied to their foot with a bell on it so that if they went into God's presence with some unconfessed or unsacrificed for sin, you know, and they just die in the middle of, you know, the, the Holy of Holies, you could pull them out. So again, that's tradition, it's not scripture, but it, you know, quite likely something like that could have happened. But the point is, um, the separation was real. You couldn't just waltz in to the Holy of Holies um, because of sin. Sin separated God's people from him. And then you get to Matthew 27, in verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Torn in two. So God rips the curtain in half. So when Jesus died, he brought an end to the separation. You know, imagine if you're a priest serving in the temple and all your life, you know, there's that curtain and that separation is just so present and top of mind. And then God rips the curtain in half. You know, the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. We are brought near. We can once again dwell with God. His presence is no longer hidden behind a curtain, but it's poured out in our hearts. So what does this mean for us today? <clears throat> you are never shut out from the presence of God. 
He now welcomes you into his presence, into relationship with him, and into that intimacy that was lost in the garden. And of course, there's a, a now and not yet aspect to this. You know, one day we will see God face to face. Um, but in that now and not yet, don't neglect the now. And I believe that God wants us to experience his presence today. Uh, one of my favorite preachers, authors, is Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I know um, in the Women's Bible Study, they've been reading one of his books. Um, and he was the pastor of Westminster Chapel in London for nearly 30 years. And one of the things that he wrote about was the, the Christian need to experience God. And he says this, The Bible never teaches a cold intellectual believism, but an experience that involves the whole person. And he was really emphatic that this is for everyone. You know, being a Christian is not just about believing, but it's about experiencing God. And this is part of what Jesus bought when he died on the cross. The separation was ended. We can now experience God's presence. When was the last time you felt like you really heard God's voice? Or when was the last time you know, you were just lost in worship and experienced his presence? Or when was the last time, you know, the word just came alive? You know, the Bible says that eternal life is not just believing in Jesus, but knowing Jesus. And we sung about that this morning. Nothing greater than knowing Jesus and experiencing him. And I wonder how much we miss out on that fullness of God's presence just because we're living like there's still a curtain. You know, we forget that it's been torn in two. Now, we still have to seek him. We still have to show up. Um, you know, I was thinking about this concept of needing to show up in God's presence, and it reminded me uh, recently, so many of you probably know, my, one of my kids is very into baseball. Um, and it's baseball season, and it's in full swing in our house. And uh, he's playing on a little league team, you know, masked up um, for COVID and everything. And uh, he, they had some practices over at these batting cages called D-Bat. And at one point, um, they offered all the kids on the team a free lesson uh, with a coach at D-Bat. And we didn't know at the time, but this lesson was going to be with actually a minor league player who was like an incredible teacher. Um, but we had to make a decision like, okay, we're a big family. We've got a busy life, a lot going on. Like, are we going to carve out time to do this? Um, and, you know, this was offered to everyone. Um, so we're like, okay, we're going to go for it. You know, we're going to take the time to schedule it, drive him there, show up. And we did. And it was an amazing experience. Like, he learned a ton, he got inspired. Um, and it was great. And of course, the reason they're doing that is because they want to talk you into one or two more lessons. Um, but all that said, this was offered to everyone on the team, and it was an amazing experience. But I got to imagine in our busy East Cobb lives, like a lot of people probably didn't show up. And in the same way, you know, to experience God, you've got to show up. Like the only people who got that amazing experience were the ones who showed up. And I wonder how much in our busy lives, there's so much going on, we're a big family, we've got a lot going on, you know, how much do we just carve out that time to show up and experience God? So this is why Jesus says, ask, seek, knock, and the door will be opened. So when Jesus died, the separation was ended. And the third thing I want to look at, when Jesus died on the cross, he brought an end to the sting of death. First Corinthians 15 says, O death, where is your sting? Throughout history, people have longed for a way to beat death, right? It's our greatest adversary. It's the great leveler. You know, all the, 
riches and fame and achievement and advancement. Like, what does it even matter if you're just going to die one day? And people have been wrestling with this throughout history. And this is what the whole book of Ecclesiastes is about. Um, you know, the meaningless of, meaninglessness of all these things if one day you're going to die. And throughout history, people have been longing and reaching for immortality. Um, you know, you see this in the search for the fountain of youth and, you know, mummification of bodies and the desperate need for procreation to carry on your family name and all of these things where people are just longing for a way to extend their life. And the fear of death grips people in a way that nothing else really does. Um, and, you know, movies play off of this, horror movies or whatever. And then, you know, fantasy movies play off of, you know, that, that idea of one day reaching, you know, immortality. Um, back in the start of COVID, maybe a little bit after the start, uh, around this time of year, we thought we'd try dining out, which, of course, in COVID means dining outdoors. And um, we went to, well, like, we love breakfast in our family. So we went to this breakfast restaurant called First Watch and... You know, we're enjoying pancakes and waffles and syrup and, and, all, and some healthy stuff too, but all the good stuff. And we're dining outdoors and the weather's beautiful and it's pretty idyllic. Um, and then, of course, we didn't realize we weren't the first ones who'd been sitting there enjoying syrup. And all of a sudden, a yellow jacket shows up. And you know when you're eating your food and you're outdoors and a yellow jacket shows up, okay, I'm just going to try and ignore this and it's coming closer and you kind of scoot away. And then, okay, it buzzes off. Okay, great. It's gone. And then another one comes. And you're kind of nervous again and the kids are starting to get out of their chairs and another one comes and another one. And before we knew it, we're surrounded by yellow jackets. And it kind of took the joy out of the experience. And so we sort of decided at the end, you know what, let's just pack up our food and, and eat the rest at home. And we headed out. And in the same way, I think the sting of death can have a similar effect. You know, the fear of death takes the joy out of life. And when Jesus died, he defeated death itself. So the sting is gone. You know, imagine if we had been sitting there, all these yellow jackets buzzing around, and we suddenly realized, huh, they're not yellow jackets, they're flies. There's no stinger. You know, all of a sudden you can just relax and enjoy the experience, and you know the sting is gone. And uh, when Jesus died, he defeated death itself, so the sting is gone. So what does this mean for us today? It means you never have to fear death, because you're never really going to die. John 11 says, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And this is why Jesus could say to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Like, he was going to die, but he was going to go on living. Um, so this is what every human heart has been longing for, a way to escape death. And this is what Jesus just accomplished. And it was such a monumental event that something pretty incredible happens to mark the occasion. In verse 52, um, it says... The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. This is the only instance or description of this event that, that we have in Scripture. And, you know, I don't know exactly how this went down, but this was such a monumental event. Like, Jesus has just defeated death that God's like, open up the tombs, get out, you know, come on. People are just getting out. Uh, and getting up and walking around to mark the occasion because Jesus has just defeated death. It's a huge event in history. So you don't have to live in fear of death. You know, the sting is gone. Death is no longer an adversary. 
And this is why Paul was able to say, and my desire is to depart and be with Christ. You know, he could even look forward to this, this experience uh, because he knew it would just be departing to be with Christ. So death isn't really death for the one who trusts in Jesus. And I wonder, you know, do we live like we're going to live forever or do we live like this world is all there is? So just to remember that we have nothing to fear and we can live in freedom, you know, enjoying God's presence every day. And, um, you know, maybe in this time of COVID, death has been a little bit more real. Um, you know, maybe you know someone who's died or maybe you've feared, like, what if I catch COVID and die? And, you know, the next time you sense a bee you know, buzzing around you and that fear tries to creep in, you know, just remember there's no more stinger. You know, Jesus has defeated death. It is finished. So remember, when Jesus died on the cross, he brought an end to the sacrifices, he brought an end to the separation, and he brought an end to the sting of death. And my question for you today is this. What are you still holding on to that Jesus has already brought an end to? What are you still holding on to that Jesus has already brought an end to? You know, do you feel like you need to keep making sacrifices for your sins? It is finished. Do you feel like you're still separated from God? You know, it is finished. The curtain's been torn in two. Or have you seen a bee, you know, swarming around and maybe felt that twinge of fear about that stinger? Like, it is finished. It is finished. And if you have not yet put your trust in Jesus, don't delay um, I would love to talk with you afterwards. I'm sure Ernie would as well, or any of the other elders or anybody, um, to put your faith in the one who brought an end to the sacrifices, to the separation, and to the sting of death. And there's so much more we could say about this passage, how Joseph of Arimathea burying Jesus was a direct fulfillment of Isaiah 53, and how you know the centurion overseeing the crucifixion himself becomes a believer. But the passage ends with Jesus in a tomb, with this huge stone rolled in front, with guards stationed there, and that's where chapter 27 closes, and you know what happens next. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have brought an end to these things, Lord. The sacrifices, the separation, the sting of death, Lord, you defeated them all. We bow before you today, Lord, and we ask that you would help us to trust you with all of our hearts, Lord, to trust you more deeply. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ. It is finished. In Jesus' name, amen.